Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. And asked me to mention a couple things about my background, so you know a little about me, so I will. I was a clueless 18-year-old who had no idea what it meant to know Jesus Christ personally, and my brother led me to Christ. Two weeks later, I was a freshman at Flint U of M and got involved with a good church in Lapeer, Calvary Bible Church, and got involved with InterVarsity and really grew during those years. After graduation from Michigan, I went on to Dallas Theological Seminary and graduated in 1978. Three weeks later, I made the second best decision of my life, and that is I married my wife, Phyllis, who's a Grizz grad. She's been talking to some of you who are also Grizz grads. And then after that, I was an assistant pastor in Lapeer, Michigan for four and a half years, and then for 34 years, I was pastor at Vermontville Bible Church in Vermontville. Pastor Paul Boger, who used to pastor here, uh, was uh, my boss for two years there and thoroughly enjoyed getting to know him. And during that time, I was heavily involved with Camp Iwakai as well. I knew Billy, Billy Buttonless Bennett when he was an assistant pastor at Grace Bible Church and uh, just thoroughly enjoyed fellowship with them. And it's just an honor to be here this morning. Howard Rutledge was a U.S. Naval pilot who was shot down over North Vietnam on November the 28th, 1965. And he spent eight long years as a prisoner of war until he and his fellow prisoners were released in 1973. A few years after that, he wrote a book called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. And I would like to quote an excerpt from that book. During those long periods of reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial. The worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays and had no time for church. For years, my wife Phyllis had encouraged me to join the family in church. She never nagged me, she never scolded me, but she just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend two short hours a week thinking about really important things. Now the sights and sounds and smells of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. I wanted to know about that part of me that would never die. I wanted to know about God and Christ and the church. But in solitary confinement, there was no pastor. There was no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no hymn book, no community of believers to guide and sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. Now, personally, I don't like trouble. I don't like hardship and suffering. But you know, God uses those things in my life and in your life to do some incredibly important things. What does God do with me when I'm going through hard times? Well, for one thing, he helps me to grow up and mature spiritually. And secondly, to teach me how I can depend upon the living God. Now, there are people today who will preach behind pulpits who will say, you know, God's whole purpose is to bless you, that you shouldn't have any trouble. You should be healthy and wealthy, and if you have problems in your life, it's because you're living in sin. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Suffering is part of life. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. You can count on that. It's going to happen. But I like also what he says at the end of that verse, take courage, I've overcome the world. And the truth is, there are many very mature believers in this auditorium this morning who know that with our heads. Suffering's part of life. But when it actually hits our life, 
you begin to wonder, well, wait a minute, why me? Where is God? Why doesn't he do something? And a good time to do that would be right now. I've been so impressed with what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. By the way, I have, there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow where I'm going this morning. But in John 15 too, it says this, Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. Can I read that again? Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it can bear more fruit. Now, wait a minute. What's wrong with bearing fruit? Why are those the branches that he prunes? And by the way, if you know anything about pruning grapes, and I don't, I have read that pruning is a ruthless process, the cutting and the chopping. Well, why does the person do that? Well, because they want all of the energy of the plant to go into the fruit, not into the leaves and the branches. And according to, to Jesus in John 15 too, the reason that he cuts and he prunes is so that we would bear fruit. Now, is full disclosure a good thing, you think? I'm going to be really honest with you here this morning. I feel so incredibly blessed by the living God. I do. I have a wonderful wife of 44 years that I don't deserve. I have four sons. I have six grandkids. If my son wasn't here, I would say they are a lot more fun than kids, but since my son's here, <laughs> I can't say that. I feel so incredibly blessed. I have a nice house. I have plenty of food on the table. God has uh, blessed me far more than I deserve, I am telling you. And yet there are times in life when every one of us go through hard times. And it's in those times we need to know God's perspective. Where is God anyway? Has he forgotten about me? Is he distant? Does he care? Is he big enough to handle it? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why would he say that? Because what you think about God determines how you live your life every day, whether you're going to trust him or not. Is he distant? Does he care? Is he big enough to handle my trouble? Is it worthless to relentlessly pursue a relationship with God, or should I just be doing my own thing? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it determines how you live your life every day. And so I would suggest this morning that it might be important to have an accurate view, a biblical view of who God is. How do we get that? Well, first of all, to get into the book every day, to have a daily quiet time. This is where God has revealed himself. This has got to be a priority. Secondly, to be under the preaching of a godly man like Todd Kendi. I love that guy. I've been a member of the IFCA for over 40 years. He's our regional president. I love Todd Kendi and his wife Nancy. To be under the preaching of the word of God. Well, third, have a lot of friends, but make sure you have some friends that love the Lord Jesus. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Godly friends. And another thing that would help is to study some of the names of God. God's names in the Bible are far more than just titles. They are God's own description of himself. God is saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I will do. And this morning, I'm going to look at, I would love to look at one of my favorite ones, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And, you know, preparation for this, I was a little surprised to find out that El Shaddai oftentimes is associated with 
hard times, pruning, people going through deep water. Now, there are three primary names for God in the Old Testament. There's Yahweh, there's Elohim, and there's Adonai, Lord. And there's all kinds of compound names. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. There's El Elyon, the God who sees. Now, the most common name for God in all the Old Testament is Yahweh. It's used twice as much as Elohim. It's used 5,321 times. I counted everyone. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. But it's used a lot. And Yahweh comes from a root which means to be. That it basically says, I am. That Moses said, you know what, who shall I say sent me? And God said, you tell him Yahweh sent me, I sent you. I am who I am. The self-existent one. And as you read the pages of Scripture, Yahweh emphasizes things like, yes, I am eternal. I am the self-existent one. Yahweh emphasizes the fact that God is holy. It emphasizes the fact that God makes covenants with his people. And he's serious about those covenants. And if he makes a promise, he's going to do it. Elohim is used about half that much. It's used, should I find this out? Yeah, it's in somewhere, 2,570 times. And Elohim comes from a root meaning to be strong. Uh, I am the strong one. That Elohim is the one who is the creator. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So that's what it emphasizes about him. He's a strong one, and if he makes a promise, I am certain he's able to fulfill it. And then there are compound names, like El Roy, the God who sees. First time that one's ever used is in Genesis Chapter 16, when God revealed himself to a terrified fugitive by the name of Hagar, an Egyptian slave girl. Made fun of her master. Sarah kicked her out. She's wandering all alone in the wilderness. Have you ever been in the wilderness in Judea? There's nothing there. Nothing grows. She is without food. She is without water. She is without hope. And can I suggest to you that God is the one who takes initiative and reveals himself to her and says, I am El Elyon, God who sees. Elroy, excuse me, the God who sees. Even in my distress, a God who cares. Even about a reject foreign girl. I wonder if God knows what's going through your life. What fires you going through this morning? Think God knows about that? Psalm 139 says that God knows when I sit down, knows when I rise up, and all the time in between. He knows my thoughts from afar. He knows what you're thinking right now. Jesus said, I know how many hairs are on your head. Then there's Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. David looks right in the eyes of Goliath, and in 1 Samuel 17, 45 says, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of heaven. How many angels are in the army of heaven? Wow. Or El Elyon, the strong one. Nebuchadnezzar, infuriated with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he orders the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than it's ever been. And he looks them right in the eye and he says in Daniel 3.15, who's able to deliver you? Huh? Who's able to deliver you? And so they're thrown into the furnace, and the guards who threw them into the furnace were vaporized instantly. And later on in that chapter, God answers that question. Who's able to deliver you? Well, Daniel 3, 25. My name is El Elyon, the strong one. 
Names of God, descriptions of himself. Let's talk about El Shaddai for a moment. I'd like to talk about the meaning of it and some characteristics of El Shaddai and then how it's used in the Old Testament. And again, obviously, it's one of the compound names of God. El is short for Elohim, the strong one, the creator God, who's able to fulfill his promises. Shaddai, translated almighty. Now, I could take a long time to talk about all the different Hebrew scholars who suggest different uh, roots for the word, and I'm just going to cut to the chase and think what I, most scholars think, that it comes from, from the same root as the Hebrew word mountain. You ever driven through the Rockies? Is that pretty impressive? Pretty cool. I did. I've been on the foot of the Alps. What is the impression of seeing those? It's pretty incredible, and that's exactly what this name is trying to provide for us, that he is El Shaddai. What's he like? And to be honest with you, as I've studied this chapter, I, you know, God Almighty, I would really like to see El Shaddai in places like Exodus chapter 14, the greatest event in all of the Old Testament, where God delivers his people out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea. I would love to see El Shaddai. That would be great preaching in that chapter. But you don't see El Shaddai in that chapter. What do you see? Exodus 14, 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord, Yahweh, swept the sea back with a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The word that's used there is Yahweh, a covenant name for God. I gave you guys a promise. I'm delivering you out of Egypt, and I'm going to fulfill that promise. El Shaddai would be great preaching in that chapter. It's not there. I would love to see El Shaddai in Isaiah chapter 37, where Sennacherib has taken the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them into captivity, and now he's marching south. He's taken city after city after city in the southern kingdom of Judah, and finally he surrounds the capital city of Jerusalem. His spokesman outside the city gates yells over the wall, you know, we've taken kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and their gods were not able to deliver them. What makes you think Yahweh will deliver you? And King Hezekiah lays it all out before the Lord, and God says to King Hezekiah, I will deliver you. Isaiah 37, 36. Then the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. When they opened the gates, 185,000 dead. But again, you don't read about El Shaddai. I loved it. Wouldn't that make great preaching? He's almighty. He can do anything, but you don't find it. Then what, what do you see with the name El Shaddai? There are three things. Number one is every time you read it, it's God's care and concern and protection for his people. Can I say it again? First characteristic is his care and concern and protection for his people. Second thing that you see, oh, I might add something else. God gives strength to the weary, hope to the discouraged, help to those in need. Secondly, El Shaddai is often used in the context of pruning, that we go through deep water, and guess who's there with us to help us? And the third characteristic of El Shaddai is simply that he is God Almighty. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. Can I talk about a couple examples of the care and concern and protection? The very first time El Shaddai is used is in Genesis chapter 17. Good old Abraham is 99 years old, and El Shaddai gives him a promise. I laugh every time I read Genesis 17. And if you'd like to turn there, I'll pick it up with verse 1. 
Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And then verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Drop down to verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. Now, notice a couple things about this. God comforting Abraham. 39 years before that, God made a promise to Abraham. I want you to leave your home in Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land I'm going to show you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you descendants more than the stars that are in heaven. And now, 39 years uh, later, God is renewing those promises. But drop down to verse 16. God promises something that's absolutely unimaginable. Verse 16, Genesis 17, 16. I will bless her, Sarah, his wife. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she <laughs> shall be a mother of nations. Kings and peoples shall come from her. Yeah, right. How old is Abraham right there? 99. Hebrews eleven twelve looks back on this chapter and says that Abraham was as good as dead. How old is Sarah at this time? She's 89, well past the age of having kids. Oh, I just thought of something. There's still hope for us, Phyllis. That's awesome, yes! Which leads to my second point about El Shaddai. He's our comforter. But he's able to do anything. Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Or the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, Verse 26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Or the angel Gabriel telling Mary she's going to be the mother of Messiah. Luke 137, nothing will be impossible with God. He is El Shaddai. Which leads me to my third observation about El Shaddai. He wanted to make Abraham fruitful and a blessing. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come forth. You know, God's purpose for our life is to make us fruitful, to have an impact in other people's lives. And I would suggest to you that in other passages, as we're going to see in a minute, El Shaddai often is in the context of going through deep waters and suffering. That God is concerned about helping you and I to grow up and mature spiritually. And he'll use hard times to do that. He is far more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. There are other examples of God's comfort. A few chapters later, Genesis 28, good old Jacob, he's infuriated his brother, Esau. He's stolen his birthright, now his blessing, and Esau is, is going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob decides to get out of Dodge. And before he does that, his dad, Isaac, has a few words with him in Genesis 28, verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padam Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Verse 3, may God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May God also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you. May you possess the land of your sojourning, which God gave to Abraham. 
Now, if there's anyone that needed God's help and protection, it was Jacob. Esau's going to kill him. And so his dad prays that El Shaddai would be with him. Now, that's a dangerous trip. It's a long way north. Think about the fact that Jacob is not exactly a hunter or a woodsman. He is a mama's boy. And his dad prays that El Shaddai would protect him. Is that what happens? He travels north, he gets to Hebron, and God gives him the dream, the vision, of the, the ladder with angels ascending and descending up into heaven. And God says to him, you know what, Jacob, you know the promise that I gave to your grandfather Abraham? And that same promise I gave to your dad Isaac, I'm giving that promise to you. I'm going to give you that land, and you're going to have more descendants than the stars in the heaven. Nothing will be impossible with God. A few moments ago, we read from Psalm 91. David writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, Shaddai. I will say to the Lord, David's saying, I'm going to say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Shaddai. God, you are my strength. You are my tower. You are my refuge. You are my fortress. And guess what, God? I'm going to trust in you. So what are you going through this morning? Some of us here know what it's like to have a child who's walked away from the Lord. I know I do. It's not fun. All of us in this auditorium have had loved ones who have passed away. And there is a hole there. It hurts. There are some in this auditorium, I don't know who you are, that are having trouble financially right now, living paycheck to paycheck. I would imagine there's one or two here that are struggling with cancer. Life is hard. I can imagine that there are a lot of other things that are going on in your life, maybe caring for someone with dementia. You know what? Today you have an opportunity to draw near to El Shaddai. He is my refuge and my strength. I am going to trust in him. I may not have all the answers. I might not always know why. But I know that there's a God in heaven who has not forgotten about me and I am going to draw near to him, and I'm going to walk with him day by day. Isaiah chapter 40. Lift up your eyes on high. Look up. Lift up your eyes on high. See who's created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. knows every star by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. That's who God is. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases power. Those youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord, yet those who wait for the Lord, can I say that again? Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not become weary. They will run and not be tired. God delights in giving strength to the weary. What are you going through? How big is your God? I am saying to you that in the struggles of life, what I need to have, what you need to have, is an accurate picture, a biblical picture, of who God is. How do I do that? Get into the Word every day. 
Sit under the preaching of the Word of God. Have godly friends. Iron sharpens iron. Study the names of the living God. Now let's talk about the pruning. We've talked about that God comforts when we're going through rough times and that he's El Shaddai. But let's talk a little bit about the pruning process. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I think that he's right. God uses the struggles we're going through to motivate us, to draw near to him, to grow up and mature spiritually. I don't like the hurt. I don't. But God will use those things in your life if you let him. Classic example of the pruning process is in the book of Ruth. Famine sweeps over the land. Elimelech decides, well, we're going to bail out of here, go to Moab. And so he moves his family there. And after a while, Elimelech dies, two sons die. And Naomi says, well, I'm going back to the land of promise. And he looks his daughter-in-laws in the eye and he says to them, please stay here. I can't provide for you. I'm too old to have children to, to have a husband for you. Stay here. Find a husband. Raise a family. And in Ruth chapter 1, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, or worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth is saying to you, you know what, I've seen your gods do something that the idols in Moab just cannot do. And you say, wait a minute, where else should I? Okay, I'm getting to that. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty, Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? And you think about that. Wait, has she come back empty? Brought Ruth with her, led Ruth to the Lord. Now I want to say to you, I don't know what it's like to lose a husband, lose a spouse. I don't have any idea. I'm clueless on how hard that must be. I don't know what it's like to lose a child, let alone all of my kids. I don't minimize what Naomi has gone through. But you know, did God forget about her? Did God abandon her? Did God even care about this foreign Moabite girl named Ruth? Did he care? And we know the story of Ruth. That eventually she meets Boaz and marries him and has a child. And that child is the grandfather of godly King David. And by the way, because of that, Ruth is a direct descendant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who else could do that but El Shaddai? Life is hard. Sometimes we don't know why we're going through the rough waters. We just don't. But those are the times when you and I need to draw near to God, who is our, our refuge, our tower of strength. And we need to realize who he is that he does care, he's not distant, that he uses even the hard times to help us to grow up and mature. Do you realize that, that one of the most interesting things about El Shaddai is that El Shaddai is used more times in the book of Job than in any other book of the Old Testament? Think about that one. It's used over 30 times in the book of Job. 
that oftentimes El Shaddai is connected with suffering and hardship. Talk about not knowing why. Job lost everything, lost his, his cattle, and then he lost his servants, his storm hit, his house collapsed, all of his children were killed. Then he not only loses his health, he loses his, his, uh, his wealth, he loses his health. He's sitting in the mud, dogs are licking the sores on his body, his friends are taking shots at him, his wife says, curse God and die. And again, sometimes we don't know why we're going through the fires. Talk about a bad day with Job. What do you do about it? Did he curse God and die? Job chapter 1, verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through that, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job emerges out of the fires of affliction. It was pretty good before that. He's awesome now. And he wants us to know something. There's a God in heaven that will help us through even the darkest days of our life. El Shaddai, God Almighty. God's names are more than just titles. They are God's own description of himself. God is saying to us, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I can do. And I would suggest to you that Life is hard. Sometimes life is not fair. And during those times of trouble, what I need to do is have a biblical picture of who God is. What enters my mind about God is the most important thing about me. It determines how I live my entire life, whether I'm going to trust him or not. Personally, I want to know him better. How do I do that? The Word of God tells us who God is. Get into it every day. Take it seriously. Have that daily quiet time. Sit under the preaching of a godly pastor. Make sure you have godly Christian friends because it's really true. Iron sharpens iron. And if you want to, study the names of God. They're awesome. What fires are you going through this morning? How big is your God? Now's a great time to draw near to him and say to him, here is my heart, here is my life. Take it and use it for your honor and glory. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. We thank you so much for the opportunity this morning that we've had to open your word. Father, you know my heart. I am not worthy of anything from you. And yet in your mercy, you forgave me and gave me an opportunity to know you and walk with you. And that's true for so many in this auditorium. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would motivate us not to be content with where we're at spiritually, but to desire more than anything else to know you and to walk with you, to get into your word on a daily basis and to pursue you, pursue you relentlessly. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.